Well, hey, good morning. Um, so, like Chris said, my name is Ross. Um, I, uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to be up here, honestly. Knowing the guys who've been up here before me who've preached the gospel and preached truth, and to be able to be counted among them, it's, uh, it's an awesome thing, uh, and one I don't take lightly. Uh, so I'm super thankful for the opportunity. Um, today we're going to be in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. It'll be up on the screen. That's a joke, because it's not. Um, we're looking at uh, Jesus' statement, I am the gate, or I am the door. It depends on your translation, um, but it means pretty much the same thing. Um, we'll read that in just a minute. Um, a while back, I lost the key to my house. Now, if you know much about me, I am sort of a procrastinator and a very forgetful person. So rather than just go get a new key made for months, I just used the spare key to get into my own house. This is a normal system for me. Uh, it was fine. My wife works from home, so most of the time, even uh, if the spare key wasn't out there, I would be able to get back in. Um, but there were a handful of times where being the forget forgetful person that I am, I would use the spare key to get inside, leave the spare key inside, and then leave the next day and totally forget to put it back out. Uh, and a handful of those times, my wife was gone when I got home, so I was locked out of my own house. And of that handful of times, now we're smaller and smaller handfuls here, um, there were three times specifically where I had to find a way into my own house because my wife wasn't going to be back for a while and the spare key was locked inside. And so luckily, and I was upset about it at the moment, but thankful that it happened. Luckily, three different times I was able to get back into my own house by climbing through a window. I found unlocked windows three times. So that, like, that part upset me, but the fact that I was able to do it was like, yes. Um, but as, as I'm climbing through my own window, uh, all three times, all I could think was, God, please don't let like, my neighbor see me. Because I don't know, like, I don't know about y'all, my neighbor probably couldn't identify who I am as I'm climbing through my own window with my chubby little legs just kind of kicking behind me. Um, and I was like, at best, he's gonna call the cops. At worst, he's gonna like draw down on me and it's gonna end really bad, right? Because it's Texas and we all have guns. Uh, but also, because look, most of the time, if someone's climbing through your window, they don't have good intentions, right? If you want into my house, you're gonna probably come in through the front door or like the back door if you're weird. Uh, and I know there's like four people in, in here right now who are like, I'm gonna talk to Jordan, I'm gonna get Jordan to let me in through the window next time I'm over, um, because I know you. Um, but all of that to say, um, it's really suspicious to climb in through a window, right? In our text today, Jesus calls himself the door uh, and points out that anyone who enters the sheep pen, specifically he's the door to the sheep pen, we'll get into why in a second, but, uh, but he says anybody who enters the sheep pen any way other than through a door is a thief or a robber, which is something we can identify with. So as we look through our text today, our question is going to be, um, the question we need to ask ourselves uh, as we get into this is, have we entered by the door or by another means? And more, even if we've entered by the door, right, if we are the part of the flock, if we've entered by the door, are we in danger of the thieves and robbers? Are we in danger of being stolen away? So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the text. Uh, it's John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. So if you've got your Bible with you or the one in the row, uh, you can open up. Again, it's not, on the, uh, not behind me, so I'm going to do my best to read it truthfully. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter, by, uh, enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Okay. So, this passage on its own can be sort of like confusing. Luckily, we have context. Um, If you recall, last week, Seth ended with the story, the text of the man born blind. I won't go into all the details of it, but the gist is this. There's a man born blind. The Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, uh, claimed that he was blind because of sin, that he was born entirely in sin, whether it's his parents' sin or generational sin or his own sin later on. That's why he's blind. Jesus heals this man. And he goes back to the Pharisees, and they're unhappy about the fact that he's gone back to them, and he's like preaching the gospel of Jesus to them. Uh, So he comes back to Jesus. They rebuke him and send him back. Um, And so they follow him. And so Jesus tells him and the Pharisees, he says, I have come that the blind may see, and that those who see might become blind. And so the Pharisees respond. They go, well, what about us? Are we blind? And yes, that's the whole point. And so Jesus tells them, If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. Put a pause on that, a little pin in that for a second. If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But since you say, we see, now you are blind. So that metaphor, also, sorry, quick note before we get any farther into this. This whole day is filled with metaphors. There's a lot of metaphors in this text and the way we're going to break down this text. Um, Jesus uses a lot of metaphors. So just get those thinking caps on. I'll try and let you know when I've switched metaphors so you're not like, the sheep are blind? I don't, uh, I'll try and do my best to like, keep us up to date where we are. Um, so Jesus tells the Pharisees that if they were blind, they wouldn't have sin. But since they say that they see, that they now are blind. This is very similar to when Jesus tells the Pharisees, same Pharisees, maybe not the same exact ones, but the same group, that he has come to heal the sick, and that the healthy have no need for a doctor. It's a very similar system. What he's telling them is that it's people who understand their sin and the depth of their sin and their brokenness, who know that they are not perfect, who are going to accept Jesus, and it is the people who think that they are righteous on their own who are going to reject Jesus because they think they don't need a doctor, or they're going to become blind to him, right? Their own self-righteousness blinds them. So, with that in mind, he goes further, he switches metaphors, um, and he starts talking about shepherds and sheep. So why shepherds and sheep? That's the first question we need to answer before we get any farther in this. Uh, what's he talking about? The Bible is super clear. It's a very common metaphor in the Bible, right? Most of you know Psalm 23, right? Uh, God is our shepherd. We are sheep. Uh, lots of she- shepherd metaphors. The Pharisees would know, as the religious rulers, that they should be the shepherds of his, God's people, right? That they should be the shepherds of the sheep, um, And they would probably know what Jesus told them rightly, that anyone who came in not through the door is a thief and a robber. Um, But then, this is where it gets good, he goes on to explain that he is the door. Right? Um, So immediately, right? So remember I I pointed out that he, I said put a pin in the idea that uh, if they were blind, they wouldn't have sin. 
Notice that that is the total opposite of their standpoint on the man born blind. They think that he is blind because of sin. And Jesus tells them that if they were blind, they wouldn't have sin, right? So immediately after opposing them, he tells them that he is the gate for the sheep and that anyone who enters the sheep pen some way other than the gate, right, if they're disagreeing with the gate, that they are thieves and robbers. This man told these people, the religious elite of the day, that they are thieves and robbers coming to kill and steal and destroy, whereas he has come to give life and life abundantly. So that's where we're heading. That's where this is going. Um, one more piece of background just to help you understand um, what they would understand of the imagery before we dig into, I think, what this text really means and what it means for us. Um, sheep pens, Right? Most of you are not shepherds. There might be a shepherd in here. We are in Magnolia. Um, but most of you aren't shepherds. So back then, there were sort of two types of sheep pens. He touches on both. The first type would be in urban centers where you would have a, a large, probably well-built sheep pen uh, that would have a lot of sheep from different flocks in it, and it would have a gatekeeper, right? Someone who was hired to stand watch. When you showed up to, to gather your sheep, uh, he would open the door for you, and you would call out whatever your call is that you have, like, assigned your sheep would recognize the call that you've worked on with them and your voice, and they would come with you. Cool? And the other sheep would hopefully not. Um, the other type of sheep pen, which is where we're going to stick, like, in the bottom half of this text, um, is the kind you would have, like, out in the sticks, right? Out in the actual pastures. Um, and these would be just sort of rough-hewn stone and mud and sticks kind of put together to build a wall. Uh, they probably wouldn't have a roof. It's not a nice barn uh, like we would have today. It's just a rough wall to keep the sheep in. And because it's sort of a rough wall or even a cave sometimes, um, there wouldn't be a nice door. So occasionally, the shepherd himself would sit in front of the gate, in front of the opening for the sheep pen, and act as the door so that none of the sheep could escape without going through him and that nothing could come in without going through him unless they came over the wall like a thief or a robber. That's helpful, I think, but I think it's not as helpful as where he's actually going, but that's something that they would probably recognize as true. They would understand that a little bit. Okay. Are you ready for me to start the sermon? That was the intro. We good? So, um, like all of the seven or eight I am statements, there's seven official ones, there's one more that I think counts. Um, uh, in, in the book of John, there is an, an understanding, first and foremost, foremost, that when Jesus says, I am, he's referring to, like, his status as deity. He's referring to Genesis when God reveals himself to Moses as a burning bush, and Moses asks him who he is, and he says, I am. I am that I am, right? He says, that's who you're going to tell people sent you. So when Jesus uses these I am statements in John, he's intentionally using this sort of language to uh, make the people recognize that he's claiming deity. Um, and then, with that in mind, we're going to go farther down. We're going to skip most of the first part of this passage. Um, it's helpful background, but we're going to stick in verses 7 through 10. So if you read 7 through 10 with me again, and we'll get to our first big point of the day. Um, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Okay, so big point number one, if you've got your little card there, um, Jesus is the door to salvation. That's that blank right there, salvation. Right? So here's the deal. Jesus is saying this, this statement, that he's the one, uh, the, the door to salvation, 
in front of and in direct opposition to the scribes and Pharisees, right? These men had a strict adherence to the law. They thought that by obeying the laws and doing the things rightly, they could have eternal and abundant life. And Jesus straight up opposes them and says, no, that leads to death and loss and ruin. If you're going to try and earn it yourself, it's death and loss and ruin. He's proclaiming that there's no other way to salvation and eternal life. He is the door to salvation. And he is the only door. Now, I know culturally, we don't like, like, the onlys, right? Culturally, not culturally in here, like in here we love this. But culturally, the world would prefer if I didn't say he's the door, the world would say it's better to be open-minded and let people find whatever path works for them, right? The church is too modernist, right? Uh, I should say Jesus is a door to salvation, but if you wanted to try Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or, you know, your crystals and looking at the stars, like, as long as it makes you happy. But, like, that's the thing is that that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I'm a door. He says, I am the door. Um, And he says that anyone who doesn't use the door is on a path to destruction and death. And I know that sounds harsh, right? Even those of us who love Jesus, like, it's a a rough-sounding thing. Um, But it's good news. And the good news is that, like, it's really the best offer out there. See, every other system, whether it's Buddhism or Islam or Hinduism, my my degree was religious studies. Just trust me when I'm saying this. It's not just like, I know a lot of people say this. Every other system offers a way to salvation or nirvana or whatever it is they're offering. And it's always a path. It's always a system. It's always a set of rules to follow to get you there. And that's not how Jesus works. Our whole system hinges on the fact that Christianity is not about what we do. It is about what Jesus has done for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Good news, by the way, gospel means good news. That's why we call it that. Um, That's the whole thing. Jesus takes our sins, our iniquities, transgressions, failures, whatever you want to call them, all the things you couldn't do right, and he takes them upon himself, right? Colossians, in the book of Colossians, Paul says that all of those things get pinned to the cross with Jesus. And then Jesus dies, and he takes those things to the grave with him. They're gone. And then he comes back without them. And the check has cleared And here's the thing. It's not just all the sins up until right now when you heard me say that and you're like, yeah, all those past sins. No, it is the past sins, but it's also the future sins. It's also the current sins. Whatever you're doing right now wrong, Jesus took that too. All of it is gone. It's done. It's taken care of. The work is finished. He takes your failures before God and he gives you his perfection before God. So our salvation comes from not from anything we could do, but from his grace and his mercy and everything that he's done for us in his loving kindness, right? Every other system, at best, is attempting to appease God by doing things. At worst, it's trying to appease something else, right? Jesus does not give us a path. He doesn't show us the door or tell us where the door is. He is the door to salvation. He is salvation itself. He calls our names. I like this real quick. Um, the, the call that Jesus says he uses for his sheep is not a general call. Like, come and be, he calls our names. He knows us by name. And when we walk through that door and we trust his power and we trust that his grace and sufficient is for us, like, that's what it means for us to walk through the door. So here's my question for you today. Oh, too far. Do you hear him calling your name? Do you hear him in your heart? If, if you aren't already in the sheep pen, if you're already not part of the flock, if you don't believe that truth, then that, that his grace is sufficient to cover everything you've ever done wrong. All of it, including the stuff you want to hide and pretend that he doesn't know. All of it is covered. Now is your moment to consider that. And trust him 
and walk through the door and join the flock, right? Even if, you, even if you're thinking, I don't know, is he calling my name? He is. Come home. But he doesn't stop there, does he? The metaphor goes on because he's a big metaphor guy. Um, that was a Loki reference. I'm sorry. Um, I was trying not to say it, and I said it. Um, so it's not the end of the sentence. Uh, it's not the end of the metaphor. He goes on. Uh, and if you've got your second bullet point there, Jesus is not only the door to salvation. He is the only door. He's not only the door to salvation, but also to abundant life. We're going to camp out here for a minute. Um, so here's the thing. He's not only the door to eternal life, uh, to the removal of your sins. He's the door to life and life abundantly. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. I'll read them to you. It's okay if you don't want to look at them. Um, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Anyone, uh, sorry, I lost it. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and life abundantly, or life and have it abundantly, depending on your translation, right? Um, before I go any farther in this, right, Jesus talks about going in and out and finding pasture, immediately after saying saved, right? So you're going in, right? That's safety, that's comfort, that's being part of the flock. You're going out. Where? To graze, to eat, right? To, to enjoy the safety and company and guidance of the shepherd, to live in abundance. But I want to, like, we're going to talk about what abundance means, but before I do, I want to point this out. Abundant life is not an afterthought, it's not an added bonus. It's not a call now and order your salvation in the next 15 minutes. We'll throw in an extra abundant life here on earth. That's not how it works. They are coupled together. They are uniquely and distinctly tied together. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible uh, passages, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, for we have concluded this that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Our life, our salvation, is not just about salvation and eternal life later on. It's about abundant life here. So I'm going to take a look at like two big ways what I think abundant life could mean for us. Um, how am I doing on time? I think I'm doing just fine. Okay. Um, I'm going to look at two big things I think what abundant life could mean for us. I'm going to say this. They're sort of opposite takes at first. But what I want you to understand is these are not two totally opposing views on what abundant life could mean. I think there's something to hold in tension with each other. Cool? Cool. So on your little card there, uh, my third point for the day, or second point after the main point. An abundant life is a faithful, loving, missional life. An abundant life is a faithful, loving, a missional life. So an abundant life is one that embodies being faithful to the will and the commandment of God, right? Why? Because it nourishes your soul and glorifies God. I'm going to jump around the scriptures just for a second here. Um, we're going to look at, you don't have to jump with me. I'm going to just tell you what it says. Um, John chapter 4, right? This is uh, Jesus with the woman at the well. Uh, the disciples go off to get food. They come back. Jesus hasn't eaten. And they're like, what happened? Did you eat lunch? And he says, I have food you know nothing about. And this is what he says his food is. He says, my food is to do the will of the Father, to accomplish his tasks. Okay? This is what nourishes Jesus, even more than food. And I think the same is true for us. So in our main metaphor, right, Jesus um, is the shepherd that leads us uh, into the sheep pen, 
for safety and for comfort. He leads us out into the fields for food and for an abundance of food. And this other metaphor, we see that doing the will of God is our food. That track? You tracking with me? Okay. We're to keep going. So if Jesus' words about himself apply to us, then, then doing the will of God is our food. And what that means, I think, is living that sort of missional, uh, faithful, loving life. Have you ever seen a youth group come back from a mission trip? Tell me that's not what well-fed energy looks like. Have you ever been on a mission trip and come back in that energy and that excitement and that buzz? You ever feel that? Now, here's the thing, though. That's great. I do love that, and that's a good point. But I don't think that when I say missional life, that that's what I mean. Well, it's not only what I mean. To make sure I stay on my notes here, otherwise I'm going to go too far. When I say living on mission, I don't just mean mission trips and mission camps. I mean doing the command and the will of God. Okay, so if you want to know the will of God, if you want to do the will of God as your food, then the best way to find that is his commands. He's going to command what he wills. Fair? Got it? Okay. Um, so what does that look like? Jump to 2 John, not in the book of John. 2 John 1.16 says this. This is love that we walk according to his commands. This is his command, as you have heard it from the beginning, that you walk in love. Oh, we're going to start painting that picture, aren't we? Uh, it's an echo of John 15, 12 through 17. I won't read you that one, uh, where Jesus essentially says that same thing to John, that his main command is love. What is the first and greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So, if you want to feel nourished, if you want to have that abundant life, then the abundant life is living a loving life, is living a life of love. And that sounds great, and I could stop there and move to my next point, and we could just be like the hippie, like, yeah, like, I think sometimes when I think of like, oh, just live a loving life, what comes to my mind is that like sort of Instagram culture. I'm thinking like Instagram with a nice filter, and it's like a Starbucks cup or a Deacon Baldy's cup, and it's... um. You know, like a C.S. Lewis quote behind it, and just happy, hippie, just positive vibe sort of love. But like, that's not what I mean when I say living a loving life. And I think that's not what Jesus means when he says to live a loving life, right? In the midst of that passage I just mentioned, John 15, I wish it was all up here, but it's okay. John 15, 13, so I said 12 through 17. In 13, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. If you want to live an abundant life, if you want to live a nourished life, then it's going to mean loving. And I don't mean happy, easy, chipper, Hallmark Channel love. I mean love when it hurts, when it's uncomfortable, when it costs you something. Loving when it costs you to lay down your life, your plans, your desires, to help someone else achieve what they're meant to do uh, and to put their needs above yours. An abundant life, a life where you get well-fed, is a missional, faithful, loving life. So if we're acting loving, if we're living out of that, we are going to feel that nourishment. But I, I want to be clear that you don't do it just to feel nourished, right? If you're doing it because you're like, oh, it feels so good to be loving. It does. But if that's your end goal, then you're missing the point. You're trying to eat of your own grass. You're not going out with the shepherd, right? You're not letting him take you where to eat. You're eating where you want. So we're going to hold that intention with, uh, with, with the next thing. Um, this is like a sub-point. I don't know where this goes. It's okay. Uh, our abundant life is one of giving in, in abundance. 
So if, if abundant life means to love, then, then what we understand as love is not the feeling of love, but the giving kind of love. And so our loving life, that's our next point, it is down there. An abundant life is one of giving and abundance, right? So like all of the other things that get turned on their head when Jesus enters the scene, our understanding of what abundance means must change. An abundant life is a life of fruitfulness. An abundance is not what we obtain, which we have obtained. We have obtained grace and mercy and love upon love upon grace upon mercy upon love over and over again, a measure and measure again. But, so, so we live out of that. But our abundance is one of giving abundance. Right? 2 Corinthians 5, 15. They live not for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Was raised. Um, we live in Magnolia Woodlands Wood Forest, Texas, right? We have plenty of abundance here, of the giving, sorry, the taking kind, right? Like, like if that's all he means, then we don't really need a lot of Jesus because if that abundant life that he's offering us is the giving or the getting kind, then there's plenty of people who don't know Jesus here in the Magnolia Woodlands Wood Forest area who have a lot and don't have Jesus. So if we can get it apart from Jesus, he must mean something else. If we can get the abundance without him, then the abundant life must mean something else. It must be a different kind of abundance. One more metaphor, we're going to switch metaphors one more time. Um, as we talk about giving of abu- in abundance and living a loving life, uh, I think one more metaphor of what, our, of what our life is supposed to be, of how abundance is supposed to work, uh, is found in the idea of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. So an abundant life is a fruitful life. Um, The Bible talks a good deal about fruit. Jesus himself in John 13 talks about fruit. He says you will know a good tree by its fruit. You will know a bad tree by its fruit. Uh, You can tell them apart based on their fruit. Uh, Fruit's one of the metaphors that God uses to describe our growth and our character and our faith. And as Christians, we should be bearing fruit, right? Luckily, there's a nice clean list in Galatians 6 of the fruit we should bear. You want to say it with me? It's great. You should, half of you can have it memorized. There's love, joy, peace. No one's saying it with me. It's okay. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's fruit. Now, before we go into any more, doesn't that sound like an abundant life? Is there anyone in here who would disagree that being surrounded by those things would be an abundant life? Anyone around here want to be not surrounded by faithfulness? And, and love and kindness and goodness and people who are gentle and self-controlled. I don't want to be surrounded by those people who aren't those things. However, as we talk about fruitfulness and abundance and giving in abundance, just like a tree does not benefit from its own fruit, right? The tree bears fruit to go spread its seeds. The tree doesn't benefit from growing fruit, does it? Likewise, our fruit isn't really for us. That whole list of character qualities is really a list of things that benefits everybody else more than it benefits you. I think of the nine, there are two, maybe one, two that, like, benefit you as much as they benefit others. Joy and peace, right? And you can make an, you can make an argument that joy is really a light to others as much as it is a pleasure for you. But, but love, right, 
putting others above yourself, being patient with others, being kind to others, goodness, being faithful to others, gentle with others. Self-control is really a denying of what you want half the time. None of those things are really just about what you can get, are they? It's about producing a fruit for others. If that doesn't track, if you're like, ah, I still don't know, Ross. Like, I mean, it can benefit you. It can. If you're, if you're doing those things, if you're trying to be fruitful with the fruits of the Spirit to benefit yourself, you're doing it wrong. Um, but if you want a clear image of something that's the opposite, I've got this. this is, I think this is the perfect image of something that's the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And something we probably all struggle with in the Houston area in general and the Magnolia area as of late in specific. Road rage. Can you think of something that more adequately like is the opposite of being gentle and kind and loving and faithful? Faithful is kind of, it doesn't come to play. Or loving or patient, right? Than someone dealing with road rage. Can I tell you before I was saved, my wife can attest to this, I had the worst road rage. I'm talking red in the face, screaming fingers and cuss words and all sorts of stuff, slamming on the gas, slamming on the brakes, like it was bad. And the thing is, like, it kind of felt good sometimes, right? Because it's all about you, right? When you win the the dumb little traffic game you're playing, when you cut somebody off and you slam the brakes, and like, ha ha, I got it. I'm not letting you over, right? All those things are about you. None of those things are the fruit of the Spirit. It's It's only about you. And when it's only about you, those things all only harm other people, don't they? You see that? See how when you live only for yourself, when all the fruit you're aiming for is is taking all it's doing as harming others— Whereas when you flip it, when our life of abundance is about others and about the will of God and about being fruitful, then all of a sudden, 